You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm Analytics not. don't work don't at all. It's just a no crap to some nothing. people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's sports podcast. I'm Chadwick Matlin, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's Neil Statman Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Chad. How are you? I am doing well. Also on the line, it's Kate Fagan. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. You know what I just realized is you always give me the second title, and maybe I'm just jealous that Neil has a nickname that gets to be like between his last name and his first name. Interesting. You well, can Kate- have Statwoman. I, I will give that to though. you gladly. Kate, ESPNW columnist and University of Colorado Athletics Booster Club president, Kate Fagan. Or Kate Fagan. Already a a position, though? I bet that's already a position. She's taking that job. She's taking that job. (laughs) Kate, I will try and think of a nickname for you. Because it's fun when we're all in studio together and you're like, Neil Statman Payne. And then it's like... And Kate Fagan. Like, I should ha- also have something that evokes, like, superhero qualities, I believe. Kate, the whole point of these titles was to give you a little bit of that, but it's not enough. You want more. Well, it just always changes, that. and then I feel like my identity is constantly in crisis on this podcast, okay. and I just right. I just want a nickname, Ooh. Chad, okay? But I want it to evolve organically. Okay, except you want me to pick yes, it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, basically, what I mean. that's what I mean. <laughs> so basically, Kate, you want your nickname to not be like Kobe Bryant uh, when he picked his own nickname. Exactly. All right, on today's show, no mention of the Black Mamba. Is that what you're talking about, Neil? Yeah. Okay. Uh, But instead, we are going to talk about college football because the season is upon us. SB Nation's Bill Connolly is going to join us and uh, help us understand how to be a a somewhat more learned fan about college football, as well as whether Alabama's preseason number one ranking is anything to be taken seriously or just sort of uh, instinct that that the the coaches poll goes through every year, it seems like. We know what Nick Saban thinks of this. Yeah, exactly. And then a significant digit on baseball from Neil. I think uh, King Felix Hernandez will be be the subject of your attention. That is correct. Excellent. But first, let's talk a little bit about the NBA, where there's some news about tampering that's going on. Apparently, the NBA is probing, is looking into whether or not the Los Angeles Lakers and Magic Johnson in particular uh, inappropriately discussed the possibility of Paul George joining the Lakers with Paul George. The Pacers have filed tampering charges with the NBA against the Lakers. The league has has confirmed this. Um, The Lakers deny the allegations that have been filed by the Pacers and say there's no evidence. And back and forth we go. But what I'm interested in talking to you guys about is whether tampering in the age of players going on vacation together, talking on social media to one another all the time, hanging out at the All-Star game, and just being generally peers and, and you know uh, colleagues the way that any industry works, whether tampering and rules against it are outdated and unenforceable, essentially. Because if, you know, apparently Chris Paul and James Harden have been talking about joining up and that eventually forced the hand of the Clippers towards the Rockets. You know, like, what's the difference between that and the GM of the Clippers talking to the GM of the Rockets? I think, Chad, the key word there is outdated. Because I can envision a past in the NBA where the structure, pay structure, was different and the power that the players held 
was different and there was a separation between owner and then GM and then player and you would understand what tampering looked like more clearly because it wasn't as if an all-time great player was now president of a team and a guy that had always engaged with players as his peers and now I'm referring to Magic Johnson so it's like the NBA has kind of cannibalized itself in terms of how it interacts in the ecosystem there so it is outdated and I and I think then there's just the larger question of whatever tampering means in general because you even look at it on the NCAA level and coaches aren't supposed to when they're speaking to a player who might want to transfer they can speak in language like wink wink you know there's always future beyond the one you're cur- you know the present you're currently living and there's opportunities for you elsewhere and what they're really i mean what they're, it's all semantics they're basically like if you want to transfer you can come here and i don't understand what the distinct distinction should be then between when somebody's penalized and when somebody is not penalized and so in the world that we live in today it seems like tampering is one would be almost impossible to prove unless someone and magic johnson ramona shelburne said like doesn't even text so it's going to be hard to have like that text that you can then forward or an email where he's actually clearly saying something and so it seems like it's an obsolete rule that the nba still has on its books yeah and not only that who cares? Uh, there was a great story at SB Nation by Tom Ziller where he basically laid out, first of all, there's n- nothing that any of the parties involved in this particular Paul George case especially did would have been any different whether or not he there was tampering that happened or didn't happen. Like, for instance, everyone knew that the Lakers wanted Paul George on their team because Paul George is one of the best players in the NBA and he was going to be available and so you don't need and tampering. The had cap room and, and the Lakers and, yeah. had the room for it uh, and and all of these things and George himself was going to opt out after the 2018 season no matter what if his agent was uh, worth his salt and so uh, just all of the ways in which the NBA's free agency mechanisms work make it so that there's almost no difference between, at least in uh, aside from maybe the most flagrant possible case, there's no difference in, in the way people behave, whether or not tampering happened or not. So that's another argument for just kind of either revising the rule or m- getting rid of it entirely because it's kind of pointless. And like you said, Kate, it's, it's outdated the way that things operate in today's NBA. Very nicely put, Neil. So nicely put that I think we should leave it there and get right to college football. Okay, now on to college football, where the season is upon us somehow. I feel like we were just talking about that Alabama-Clemson final not too long ago, but it's the end of summer. Beginning of fall, time for college football. Here to help us out in our discussion is Bill Connolly, an SB Nation writer and the author of 50 Best College Football Teams of all time. Bill, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bill, what's the number one college football team of all time? (laughs) Um, I will get yelled at by Miami fans if I don't say 2001 Miami. I don't think it's 2001 Miami though. Give me a 1945 Army. Bill, you're the you're the you're the one who wrote the book on it. Is that a, <laughs> yeah? And I actually that was actually one of the teams that I liked and uh, wanted to write about and was very good. It's a very antisocial title. It's just the 50 I really wanted to talk about, including 1945 Army. Man, all right. Well, let's talk about this year's Alabama team, which for at least this year so far is ranked number one in the preseason polls uh before before we get to this Alabama team actually should we care about preseason polls do they tell us something important about how good a team is going to be or in college football is that not the case because one loss and you're out 
basically. Well, right. I mean, I think uh, it tells us something just because the people voting in it, you know, whether they realized they were doing it or not, they were collecting evidence. They were, you know, filtering it through their own experiences and they're reasonably uh, they have decent expertise in their field. So you could say that there's value in it just in terms of figuring out where everybody's starting. But no, I mean, I think with the college football uh, playoff committee now playing such a, a dramatic role in the, determining the national champion and they don't start till midseason. They've proven they will stray a little bit from the polls here and there. I, I mean, I think you could say that it's it's just for discussion. It's not really, it doesn't necessarily have an impact on anything uh, overall. Well, Bill, am I wrong that college football seems really kind of deterministic? So even if the, the AP poll doesn't have like an effect on the, the committee members, it does really line up well with who ends up being at the top of the heap at the end of the season just because we kind of know already who has the most talent and, and who's going to run roughshod over the competition? Yeah, for the most part we do. I mean, that's um, the best predictor of uh, future college football success is recent college football success. And so uh, we know Alabama has all the talent and the recent history and a good track record of developing players. So chances are they're going to be near the top. Um, so it's it's not the hardest sport in the world to predict. Yeah, there, there's, there will always be a kind of a, a strange out of nowhere story whether they make the playoff or not is a different story but we kind of know in advance the eight or ten teams that have a really really solid shot at, at making the at having a chance at the national title right so bill it seems like where you would really make your money analyzing college football is being able to be someone who can spot the numbers that reveal which teams kind of maybe in the lower top 25 or somebody out of the top 25 will actually make a splash in the college football season. Because like if I, I know it's my alma mater, but last year Colorado Buffaloes actually surprised people and they end up in the top 10. I don't think a lot of people saw that coming. So when you analyze college football, how do you avoid being derivative of what everyone else has said? And what numbers do you look at to try and determine which teams outside of the ones everybody already agrees on is awesome might be better than expected? Well, I look at my own numbers. There we go. I have my S&P Plus rankings that I've been posting to Football Outsiders for a long time. And it really, I mean, it'll track pretty close to the real thing. Um, and, and, you know, I have Alabama one. I, when the updated numbers come out, I'll have Florida State two and Ohio State three. But I, I think, you know, you can certainly, those are the overall projections. And then you can start to look at certain things. Basically, you have kind of candidates for surprises. In Colorado, probably wouldn't have been one last year, but they had a very experienced roster. And so looking back, you could you could at least have put them in that pool in the in the preseason that one of these really super experienced teams, they're going to finally have the leadership they need and one of them is going to break through. Uh, but it really is it's tough uh, to, to kind of see that in advance because, uh, you know, pointy ball and 18 to 22 year olds, there, there's really going to be some randomness that you can't see coming ever. Now to Kate's uh, question along the same lines, uh, do the same types of rules that we think of when we're looking at the stats for the NFL? So, you know, things like point differential and, and trying to figure out, you know, did you win a lot of close games? You might regress to the mean, things like that. Do those rules generally also apply to college football or are there kind of special quirks that might be different in the college game as opposed to the pro yeah i would say um i mean certainly things like pythagorean record or or uh wins in close games those have the same effect i would say one of the things we've sort of kind of noticed over time is that you know you can kind of continue a close game record uh when you've got like when there's a specific kind of coach quarterback combination like Jameis winston uh they kept winning close games uh the entire time he was at florida state and then they kind of stopped uh pretty soon thereafter but um for the 
the most part, yeah, there is a regression to the mean there. I will say the biggest difference with college as opposed to pro is the opponent adjustments. It's very hard uh, to, you know, there's there's so little connectivity uh, when you think about uh, the top 20 or 30 teams that, um, you know, it really becomes kind of a tricky a tricky deal to, to come up with really good uh, opponent adjustments. And, and with teams or with conferences, excuse me, moving into nine game conference schedules, it becomes even more difficult because there's less interaction from conference to conference. So I want to ask you about that connectivity because we talked on the show before about the difficulty in trying to appraise team quality, especially as we've talked about whether or not this playoff committee is the right way to select the teams because we don't have a lot of intelligence and information being passed between the teams essentially about about how good they are. But at the same time, the competitive imbalance in college football seems pretty high. And that seems like something that we can say despite these teams not always playing against each other. And I'm wondering sort of what the is is do you think the sport is stable as is with the with with the way scheduling works, which is that teams that are really good often don't play each other outside of conference. Although this year it's a little bit different with, with these early games um that that uh particularly good teams, I think what is it, Florida State is is playing Alabama right off the bat, for example. And so whoever loses that might be on the ropes right away. Um but I to get back to my long-winded question, the, my question is, is this sport eventually going to have to sort of reconcile with its scheduling imbalance? And therefore, I would also argue it's competitive imbalance because until these teams play each other, we can't quite get a sense for how good they are. Yeah, there's not enough of a meritocracy involved here. Uh, you know, the, the the power conferences have been defined basically as they were defined for the most part about 80 years ago. And it, so basically, whoever your friends were then kind of determines whether you're a a power conference team and therefore have a legitimate shot at the national title to start the year. And that's really, I mean, that's a shame because the, the dead weight uh, at the power conference is always going to be far, far, far. Those teams are going to be far worse than the best teams of the group of five. And there's really no way for the group of five to ever, you know, any of those teams to ever move up aside from these little pockets of, of conference realignment and expansion that we have. So I think the sport is definitely not, it's not moving quickly towards this, uh, but you can tell the sentiment is growing for those power conference teams to kind of split apart from uh, the rest of the group five, the rest of FBS. And it, and it is a shame because the teams that weren't didn't have their affairs in order 80 years ago might not be able to get, make it no matter what hires they make now and no matter what decisions they make now. Alternatively, could you have basically a sort of promotion relegation model almost where you're speaking my language this is something i've definitely written about before it'll never happen because yeah. uh well because you know kansas for example would be in the southland conference right now but they have really good friends in the big 12 and the big and the it'll take all the conference commissioners and all of these people to sign off on it and they just won't so i mean that's i i've pushed that many times i've i've explored it it would be incredible for the sport as a whole you would have you would have houston where they should be you would have a lot of teams uh, where they deserve deserve to be but yeah we're, we're kind of stuck and and that's a shame because that would be a perfect system uh, college football would be the perfect um stage for a promotion or relegation system and do you have any f- philosophies about fixes that could exist for college football that you actually believe could happen because it seems like right now we're destined for college football to always just be incredibly top heavy because kids aren't going to choose a mid-major team, especially when big programs aren't going to schedule games. So it's like you don't even get your opportunity in the limelight. It's a lot of the same model that happens about why UConn just grows and grows in the women's basketball because you've got people climbing the ladder and they're not going to give up the opportunity to like try and build a program. So other than splitting off and saying, here are the Power Five 
teams. And then over here, we've got what, like tier two football, which then I think people will care a little bit less about. Like what other philosophy model could work there? Well, I think one of the options would be uh, if you expanded the playoff to eight teams and, and that group of five representative that make that gets the power bowl slot now that ends up in the Fiesta Bowl against the worst, uh, you know, the, the worst qualifying P5 team, basically, if that if that team had a shot at the national title, if you got them, even if it was the eight seed and they get pummeled by Alabama most of the time, technically it wouldn't happen every time. And you would have a, a situation now where every single team in FBS technically starts the year with a shot at the national title. Cause that's, a, I mean, that's the biggest thing right now is half of half of FBS doesn't have that. It, it doesn't even have a prayer of that because even if they win their conference, uh, the mountain West or whatever, they have to have gone 13 and zero. they have to have dominated every game and they have to have scheduled. They've had, have, to have had the foresight to you know six years ago have scheduled the right series of non-conference <laughs> games for this breakthrough and it's just uh, you know houston last year if they would have gone undefeated they would have come pretty close uh but it's really really hard and if you expand it and give at least one team from that pool a guaranteed uh slot then at least you can say everybody has a chance i think that would be a step forward otherwise i mean yeah we're, we're breaking up uh, we're breaking apart at some point it's just a matter of when and it's so funny because that's that's kind of the opposite problem if you could call it a problem that college basketball has where in in their setup, it's almost too easy for a team to just kind of get hot, sneak in, like UConn has done a few times on the men's side, and uh, and win the championship when they clearly weren't the best team in the country. It, it almost sounds like in college football, it's too easy for the best team, or at least you know maybe uh, the top one team of the top three most talented teams in the country to just kind of steamroll over everyone, and and no one else even has a shot. Yeah, if, especially if you're in one of the uh, whatever the weaker power five conferences in a given time, I guess Oklahoma this year, they do have Ohio state. So that, that makes it tricky. Uh, but you know, uh, I guess the PAC 12 would be uh, maybe the other weakest uh, power five conferences here. Yeah. I mean, you've got a really nice shot if you're USC right now that I, the projected win totals that I ran last time, it was something like they had three, like three projected wins more than anybody else in the PAC 12 South. So they're, they're in really good shape uh, because of their conference and because of everybody else. But you do wonder like if, if the, if the G5 representative got a shot at it, whether it was a, a 16 playoff or eight or whatever, then maybe you would have some of those kind of those mid to high three star kids, maybe looking at the the top end of the G5 uh, as a as a shot. Maybe that's a better opportunity for me than going to a kind of a lower rung P5 team. So let me ask you, Bill, as you look forward to this season, what are the metrics you're going to be? looking at to see quality, whether it be for players or, or for teams, you know, beyond obviously the polls or, or what the the playoff committee says. How do you approach this sort of ineffable question that we wrestle with at 538 all the time, which is how to evaluate talent and how do you do that for college football well i think one of the things i've found um for football in general but especially college football i guess is um one of the things i've explored at least is the relationship between efficiency and explosiveness basically with everything i do from a college football perspective i try to take advantage of the fact that college football is last in the in, in terms of evolution with a- analytics and i try to steal everybody else's ideas uh, and from the very start of when i was writing for football outsiders i was looking at a, kind of an ops uh for for football the the efficiency metric being the the success rate measure that, that Aaron has had at FO for a long time. And then I created an isolated points per play thing that looks at basically how explosive are your successful plays. 
And so when you do that, you see that, you know, basically 90% of that equation is success rate is that efficiency measure. And I think it's a really kind of a, a cool thing because you can see it at the beginning of the year kind of developing and, and figure out maybe sooner than other than other measures, you know, who is playing consistently well and who's most likely to sustain it because success rate does seem to be relatively sustainable, sustainable uh, and explosiveness really isn't at all. It was kind of an interesting thing that I've discovered through the years. And does that help cut through? Uh, I know in college football a lot more than in the pros there are a lot of kind of trick offenses and and weird schemes and and teams putting up you know huge point totals against uh opponents that probably are not very well suited to to play them and so uh, are there certain situations where you're trying to adjust or trying to take into account uh the particulars of a given offensive system and and how it might match up against a certain defense and and maybe you know a team's overall numbers might not reflect how well well, it would project against other opponents, or is that something that is for the future in college football metrics? Yeah, I mean, with the the variety of uh, attacks in, in at the college football level, it's one of the the coolest things about college football. It does make things very difficult to project when you think about the fact that Texas Tech and Navy play the same sport at the same level, <laughs> or, or Washington State, I guess, is, instead of Texas Tech now. Mike Leach and and Ken Niamatololo coach the same sport somehow, and it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and they played uh, once like a decade ago it was great but it does make it kind of difficult because there's still a pretty wide variety of styles and so we can look at i look at you know rushing and passing look at standard downs and passing downs there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of different ways you can look at it but it is tricky if you're kind of trying to draw conclusions about style it's 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 still pretty wild wild west in that regard and and bill what would your advice be for like entry level perhaps like second level stat that you look at for a, a fan who is into analytics but not like crazy advanced analytics that you think gives you a general good assessment on how to look at college football teams in this season if they just want one or two things that are like okay I can check that out and I'm going to learn more than I think than I think I do in other stats about a team yeah I do think honestly uh, this is maybe me being selfish but I've had a lot more luck uh, describing and kind of uh, communicating the success rate idea than a lot of others I think it adds one thing to the box score that should exist but doesn't otherwise just because it tells you about efficiency you can yards per play I think people are starting to figure out that the per play stats are better than the total yardage stats not not everybody by any means but it's it's trending in that direction but if I could add one thing to the box score in terms of the tools that I use it would be that efficiency, uh, that that o- that on base percentage style measure of just of uh, labeling every play a success or a not success. It tells you a lot about wh- how likely you are to sustain it in a way that th- that the the box score metrics don't. All right, Bill Connolly, that was all super interesting and made me sort of want to watch a little more college football than I was planning to this Chad, season. Notorious college football hater. Uh, I I think that the league is structured in such a way that it does not make being a fan of one of the teams if you don't already have a pre-existing association with them very Go difficult Buffaloes. because uh, so maybe it's just the answer is i should become a colorado fan exactly. for on kids behalf um anyway that's a rant for yes, another time Chad, because uh, Bill we, Connelly, gotta, we should do a show where you get to pick a college football team just like we picked someone's nfl fandom when the oh, rams life yeah Ooh, i'd, I'd okay. take that neil if you want to work on that algorithm that's good anyway bill Connolly, thanks so much for coming on Hot takedown uh, listeners, you can read more of Bill's work all over the internet, but you can find him at his Twitter page, SBN underscore Bill C. Bill, thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, now to close out our show, it's time for our significant digit when a telling number from the world of sports is brought to us. This week, Neil is doing the bringing. Neil, 
You've been deep in those baseball databases lately. Always. Good piece after good piece on oh, some weird you, baseball stuff. Always. I enjoyed your piece about how Joey Votto is not good enough for the Reds to be good. I'm enjoying your future piece that's coming later this week about how baseball is full of Adam Dunn's now. And we once panicked about whether even one Adam Dunn meant the death of baseball. Neil, what else have you dredged up from the depths of these databases so uh as part of that joey Votto story that you mentioned uh our sig dig is 51.8 that's the number of wins above replacement that felix hernandez the great uh seattle mariners pitcher uh produced in years in which the mariners did not make the playoffs uh and so i kind of you know apropos of joey Votto, i went through and tried to find basically which players great production has been wasted the most on seasons in which his team didn't make the playoffs or only made the the wild card game and lost the wild card game because before 2012 that was kind of equivalent to uh missing the playoffs uh in the age of the division series and so i found that among pitchers uh king felix was the one that had been wasted the most uh and it really is sad to see uh someone like him especially since in recent years his numbers have kind of fallen off he's gotten hurt a lot uh and so i don't know how much more he has in the tank uh, to contribute to what was looking like for a long time a certain Hall of Fame career. Now it's a little bit. If you look at some of the Hall of Fame metrics, it's it's more in doubt than than it once appeared to be. But also the Mariners, pretty much the entire time he's been there, they've been in the midst of this terrible streak of not making the playoffs. It's probably going to happen again this year. And and given their records over the years, you would expect uh, our our colleague Rob Arthur did a story on this last season, you would expect them to have made the playoffs at least a few times, a handful of times over the years just by chance alone, uh, but instead they've gone 0-4 ever since 2001, which was the year that the, they uh, tied the all-time wins record with 116 wins in a season. So I don't know if they made some kind of devil's bargain that year in which they, they set this record uh, and, and then, of course, didn't even win the World Series uh, or, or what they did, but it's been a lot of uh, you know near misses, and it's not like they've been bad over that span they've won like 85 games 87 games 84 games and they still have not been able to sneak into the playoffs and and i'm worried that felix hernandez's prime years of great pitching have kind of gone to waste during that that period because for the longest time about a decade he was the best pitcher in the american league and and an incredible treat to watch now neil i know you were mired in the depths of the baseball analytics tower that's what I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it tower. It was the depths of that tower. But like, I need a, I need some proxies here. I need some proxies for how this applies, to like the NBA. Like, what what guy could you come up with now that you think has had the most wasted win above replacement? The the only one that pops into my mind. It's just because of my background, and it's not totally applicable. Is, is Patrick Ewing? Just because, but the Knicks always made the playoffs, so it's like he had tons of star value and never turned into a championship. But that's totally different than Felix Hernandez. So, like, who's your basketball guy that you think would be the Felix Hernandez of the NBA or NFL guy? Or do we need to, like, send you back into the depths of the separate towers? Well, I think it's a little different in basketball, right? Because uh, we've talked about in the past that one player can be so dominant that they sort of can be a team unto themselves and drag a team at least to the playoffs, uh, if, if not further, as we've seen with LeBron James with some pretty weak supporting cast, dragging them all the way through the conference playoffs and into the finals on, on numerous occasions. But I think if you were to kind of adjust the the 
expectations in basketball to be like, you know, not making the playoffs, but going a little bit deep into the playoffs or, or making the conference finals or something. Chris Paul has to be the basketball version of this because you know, for for the amount of production that he has given the Clippers and even before that the Hornets over the years, he still has barely made a dent in the playoffs over his career. Uh, and you could maybe, you know, argue that because this is basketball, some of that has to fall on him more than, than you would blame, you know, Felix Hernandez for the Mariners' lack of success. But I think also just, you know, the, the Clippers with Paul have found just an increasingly bizarre series of ways to kind of disappoint in the playoffs year after year after year. And uh, CP3 himself is a guy that has numbers that make him look like an all-timer if you ignore the playoff resume. So I think he's kind of the one that jumps to mind in basketball. And as far as football goes, uh, you know, there football itself is different also as we've talked about, but also I think our definition of what makes a great for instance quarterback in football is so tied up in a team's success that it's difficult especially to think of quarterbacks that, you know, put up great numbers but but didn't you know, have a great career or, or their team didn't, uh, you know, win games. Maybe Philip Rivers is someone uh, that, that I could think of on the football side that has had great numbers, but maybe, you know, hasn't hasn't won a Super Bowl, hasn't gone to a Super Bowl, despite some of uh, some of the stats that he put up. But those that's off the top of my head. What do you think, Kate? <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Those are very good. I would never challenge this that man says the. Oh God! Did we come up with a nickname for you yet? Says the future nicknamed Kate yeah. that will nickname okay. to be Boy, named. I got later. some homework for next week. All right, uh, that'll do it for this week's show. Kate Pagan, thanks for calling in from DC. Thanks, Chad. And Neil Payne, Neil Statman Payne. Let me just oh rub it in God. while I have a chance. Thanks for talking about sports. Thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Alice Wilder is our intern. We got production assistance from Tony Chow. You can email us at podcast538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app. We're also on iTunes, of course, as well. Subscribe to iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chad Matlin. Talk to you next time.